How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. With gas prices rise, with rising gas prices hitting American wallets, the Obama administration is pushing its vision of having one million electric cars on American roads by 2015. With electric-driven autos just starting to show up in dealer showrooms in a handful of American cities, how realistic is that goal? Automakers say they're looking for signs of how much consumer demand materializes for vehicles that are totally or partially gasoline-free. Customers will have more choices this year than ever, but it's anyone's guess how fast EVs will move from a niche to the mainstream. Today we welcome our live audience in San Francisco and auto experts from five companies who will discuss the shape of things to come. Forrest Beenham is Vice President of Government Relations with Coda Automotive. Oliver Kuttner is CEO of Edison 2. Bill Reiner is National Manager with Toyota. Mike Robinson is VP for Environment, Energy, and Safety Policy at General Motors. And Dan Sperling is a member of the California Air Resources Board and a professor at UC Davis. Please welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks for coming. Good to have you here. Uh, Bill Reiner, let's start with you. Um, let's start with Dan. <laughs> oh, okay. We'll get to him, believe me. Um, you know, Toyota is in some ways synonymous with hybrids. People, you know, hybrid hegemony is a term that's, that's used out there. And so Toyota has a pretty strong position with hybrids right now. Mm-hmm. And some people would say that you want to kind of maintain that position with hybrids and hold on to it as long as you can and not go as quickly as some others might to to electrics where you don't have the first mover advantage. Is that fair? Are you trying to hold on to your hybrid hegemony? Well, yeah, we've got a lot of uh, money tied up into hybrids and a lot of intellectual property, but that's because it's a very good way to uh, maximize the efficiency of the powertrain. I mean, you're going to get 38 to 40 percent efficiency, and it's a very difficult platform to compete against. And so we still see a lot of the market moving toward us, not ahead of us. And and. In electric cars, pure electric cars specifically, there's very little first mover advantage. And you're out there trying to figure out where the, where the infrastructure is going to go and how the tow service works and what happens when your charger doesn't charge your car and all the stuff that, that, that some of the competitors are going to go through. So there's very little first mover advantage. And I do want to correct something is that uh, one of the programs that I actually managed was a retail program. I think we're the only company to ever have sold retail electric cars. And we did that in 19, 98 or 99, sometime around there. So Toyota sold them rather than, than lease them as some other companies mm-hmm. did. Could I uh, disagree with one point that, uh, sure. you know, Bill said there's no first mover advantage. And I think there, that's true to the extent of the technology yeah. and maybe getting mass market. But it does create a halo for the entire company, which Toyota understands better than anyone, what the Prius did. Yeah. And I think what Nissan is benefiting from, and GM to some extent, is this halo, which may not translate into direct sales of the vehicles, but creates a halo for the company that that raises the profile, makes them look environmental, high tech, and is great for the the entire 
suite of vehicles that are sold for the, by the company. I'm a little cynical about that because it, that opens the door wide for greenwashing, and I think the companies here are pretty opposed to doing that. And so when we talk about the halo effect and, and whether a company is a true environmental company, it has very little to do about the actual products you offer and a lot to do with how you offer the product. So how you, how you address the landfill, how you address the carbon from the factories, how you address the end of life. I mean, that's the really true environmental stuff and the stuff that never gets talked about. Everybody says, well, a bigger battery is a greener car, and it's not necessarily all. But you acknowledge that, that the Prius gave Toyota a tremendous oh, sure. halo sure. that other companies want. Sure. Didn't I, I, the brand, I'm a non-car guy, but didn't the brand value? Oh yeah, no, 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 no. I won't disagree with that at all. To Dan, to Mike Dan, Robinson. To Dan's point, I, you know, with, with General Motors and, and the Volt, I, I would tell you that that vehicle uh, has given us permission to have an entirely different different dialogue with our customers than, than maybe we could have had prior to this. It has opened some people's eyes to other offerings that are uh, good choices, whether they're electric or not. Um, in, in the context of your your opening statement, uh, Greg, about you know, the volumes that we're going to be looking at. You're probably going to ask us about that. Um, the president get, didn't get those volume uh, predictions from us. Um, but um, we're, we're certainly um, very excited about our product, and we think um, the Volt does some things that no other product will do. And we, we learned a lot during the same period that Bill was referencing in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, we were one of those companies that leased the vehicles and uh, learned a heck of a lot about nickel hydride. A lot of those same learnings have, have been applied to what we're doing now with the Volt. And balancing the act that we've uh, come up with for that product program is to provide enough range on the battery uh, that people get the benefit of that. Uh, for the most part, you know, that covers 75% of the population to and from work. The extended range capability on the vehicle um, deals with the range anxiety issue that we all talk about and worry about. So for us, at, at this point in time, we think it's a good, a good balancing act. Uh, customers are responding um, pretty well to it, and the feedback we're getting from the customers is very positive. And that doesn't mean we're going we're to sell a million by 2015 in the industry. We, none, none of us are smart enough to know exactly what that volume is going to be, right? But um, we're optimistic that if we get the costs down enough, uh, it's, it's, it's ultimately a value proposition for the customer. It's got to make sense from a financial standpoint. Mike Robinson is vice president of General Motors. And I want to pause for a second here. Can you hear all of us out there? No, not okay. Well. All right. So we need to get the sound levels up. Uh, I can hear some people better than others. Um, yeah. How's that better? Is this better? Yeah, here's it on. Really, really. Uh, turning it on helps. That's, uh, there we go. All right. Okay. Um, Mike Robinson is vice president at General Motors. We're discussing electric vehicles at, at Climate One. Uh, okay, so we're talking about unit volumes, a million units. That's the goal for, for 2015. And what I'm hearing is that you're not sure, no one's sure we're going to get to that level. I mean, the Department of Energy uh, numbers have 125,000 volts starting next year. Are you going to make that money? Are you going to make that much? I'd like to know who they talk to about those volumes. Um, you know, this is an interesting time. People uh, uh, people are looking for optimistic projections, I think, uh, about what the numbers are actually going to be. Our volume uh, that we've talked about for next year is about 45,000. Now, we want to be prepared to ramp up uh, if the market demands more uh, than that. 
But the one thing we want to do with this technology is make sure we don't overproduce, uh, you know, before it's time. I, I think um, I think Toyota would probably agree with this. You want to you want the demand to, to exceed by some number the supply that you have available, um, and you want to make sure the quality is right for sure. Uh, and that's our that's our plan right now. Well, we're talking about scale. Let's get Forrest Beenham from Coda Automotive in here. Um, you're a startup company. Uh, history's littered with lots of companies trying to get into the auto business. Uh, uh, you have some very savvy and uh, prominent members on your board, former, former Secretary of Treasurer. You hired a lot of people from General Motors. Do you think that a startup can really get in this business uh, and build purely electric cars in a volume that's really going to be meaningful? Well, I don't think we would be in this business if we thought it would fail. Um, as a startup, CODA, CODA is a musical term, which means the end of one movement and the beginning of the next. And for us, that means uh, moving away from our dependence on fossil fuels and adopting an electrification uh, model of transportation. Um, when there's a discussion about the, the halo effect, uh, we're kind of sitting on the back uh, line because that's an expensive halo uh, in terms of marketing dollars to get that type of first entry brand recognition. Um, the title of this panel is implies pole position. For someone of my generation, there was a video game I spent far too many hours playing, uh, which implied there's a race to, to, to yeah. finish. And uh, as we talked about before this panel, it's really about uh, just kind of all being together to, to move toward uh, the, the acceleration of the electric vehicle, whether it be a hybrid or an all-electric vehicle. But to your question, we absolutely believe that there's a place in the market for an electric vehicle uh, in the future. Yeah, it's probably going to be counterintuitive to your uh, to your audience, but we're actually pulling for one another to be successful in the sense that we want the technology to be successful. Um, we all have different approaches to solving this issue, but um, you know the worst thing that can happen for any of us is to have the technology fail because it's not right. The customer doesn't know how to use it. There's an education component to all of this to sell mass markets, and uh, we, we really want the, the technology to succeed. And so if one of you fails, and kind of the mud or blood splatters on we're the others, right? Yeah, 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 we're all and, and it doesn't necessarily mean... Bill Reiner. I'm sorry. It doesn't necessarily mean we've got a product failure. I mean, as we were talking, I think that the OEMs have outrun society's ability to understand how we integrate these cars into society. From the, from the Public Utilities Commission, how we price the cars. Uh, we have a, uh, we have a tiered pricing here in California that penalizes the EV driver right now, because you're charging on tier three or tier four rates, so you might be charging at 24 cents a kilowatt hour. We've got to address that, but we have to address it in a, environment, in a, in a manner that recognizes environmental justice. How does the model for public charging uh, take place? Is it privately owned? Is it for-profit? What happens to utilities if it's for-profit? And then how does that change when you go to another state where that's recognized here in California and Colorado where we're also working? It's, it's strictly going to be public charging by the utilities and maintained by the state. So. And I can speak, you know, from a regulatory perspective, there's huge questions on yeah. how do you handle this? Because, you know, as Bill was just suggesting, the, the carbon footprint of the electricity varies dramatically over time and space. And, and then, so how do you create incentives and regulatory structures to handle that? And that plays a big role in, in supporting and incentivizing what the automakers do and, and, and how they bring it out and what product, you know, because there's all this question. There's everything from a, a plug-in hybrid with a very small battery mm-hmm. all the way to a pure battery EV, and it can be a big battery EV or a smaller car. So, I mean, we are, I guess, as we've been, the theme here is we're way ahead of 
the regulatory process, we're way ahead of the market process. The standardization issues are a challenge. So this is a big adventure, and in a, you know, a hugely important one. We've got to make this successful. Dan Sperling is a member of the California Air Resources Board and a professor at UC Davis. Well, let's summarize then for listeners uh, what those policy incentives are now. Someone's saying, hey, I'm interested in an electric car. They're kind of new. Uh, they're expensive. They're more expensive than traditional internal combustion en- engines, cars. What are the incentives right now, federal and state, that will help uh, consumers get into electric cars? Dan? Okay, I can list, I'll list them just quickly, is that at the federal level, there's a subsidy of $7,500 pure for a pure battery EV per car, and, and for, that covers quite a few cars. I believe it's 200000 per automaker. Mm-hmm. At the uh, state level, in California, we have a subsidy right now. It's $5,000 per car, smaller for a plug-in hybrid. And that might change, and there's uh, $5 million per year available. That's going up to $15 million next year, probably, it's proposed. There's uh, the zero-emission vehicle mandate for the car companies in California. There are subsidies from the federal as well as the state for public charging. And there's a regula- uh, the vehicle sta- standards for fuel economy and greenhouse gases per vehicle in place that are structured in a way that give an incentive to the car makers to produce more electric cars. But and, and to your question, Mike Robinson, to your question about the uh, the million volume by 2015, right. to Dan's point about caps, um, unless those caps get lifted, I don't see the math working out real well, Dan, to get to a million. Hey, so I we're not. I wasn't the author of that. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike Robinson, what I hear you saying is that these incentives are good, but they don't go to enough. They won't apply to enough cars to get to a million. Well, I guess what I'm saying, uh, Greg, is that, that this is going to be uh, not just a matter of can the manufacturers build these early generation uh, technologies, but is there a true partnership uh, with government all the way around that gets this into the marketplace in, a, in an affordable way? Because the first generation of these, of these technologies is, is vastly expensive. It's hugely expensive. Oliver Kuttner, you're CEO of Edison, too, a, a car technology company. You want to jump in here? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the recurring theme is cost. Um, I think the million cars can happen, but not by 2015. I think we've missed the first few years. And what it really takes is a structural new look at the car. Um, in, in the early 70s, you had people uh, promoting heat pumps, and people were wondering what those things were going to do. And now most people have heat pumps. That's really the same story. It's getting off of oil and gas and coal into electricity for heating your home. This is what's happening with cars today. But heat pumps became successful when you combined them with insulated homes. Um, People weren't insulating homes in the 60s because energy was really, really cheap. It wasn't the priority. When you start to insulate the home, the heat pump can actually succeed. The heat pump can actually heat it in a reasonable time frame. The same thing is going to happen with electric cars. If we build cars the way cars are built today, you have to have 16, 24, 30 kilowatt hours of battery in the car. Right there, you're looking at a $10,000, $15,000 part today, and it's a lot of energy, there's danger with it, etc. If we were to, so to speak, insulate the cars, i.e. rethink the way a car is built, or built the car in a more efficient way, like an airplane, for example, because the, the payload ratio versus the equipment ratio on an airplane is favorable to a car, and the thing flies and goes fast. Um, it just doesn't make sense that 200-pound payloads are moved by 4,000-pound boxes. However, 
it's very difficult to change because we have all this legacy and industry and risk and, and aversion. So it's, in the end, it's all about money. But if we can rescale the car to a more, better insulation model, then the million cars are going to happen because the cars are cheaper. So you're talking so, about so making all, all of arguing for now is you're arguing for tort reform, so I don't have to listen to the That's lawyers. That's exactly right. That's exactly I, right. I'm all for that. <laughs> That's part of it. That is part of it. Now, um, we, we've got the rollover standards and Christ standards, and we, yeah. we designed to that. Bill Ryan with Toyota, yeah. And that really masses the car up. And, okay, and we can do that later. We can put in some other XYZ materials. But there's got to be a litigating trail that shows that in somebody's involved in an accident that that is the best practice that we can put in there. It's not just magic. We can make it up and yeah, do I it. Joke, I joke about the lawyer thing because I'm a reformed lawyer, but um, I deal with you know, the safety agency a lot in Washington. I understand a lot about the structure that we build into vehicles for safety compliance reasons and, and for litigation reasons. All is right. If, if we could take uh, – if we were relieved of some of those uh, – uh, pressures and, and could take structure out of vehicles and would reduce weight dramatically. The other thing we've talked about as a, a small group is, is the fact that the future, uh, I think, will allow, it's going to be in the distant future, but we'll be able to have the, the ability to communicate between vehicles. Um, vehicles will be able to know where they are relative to one another. Uh, systems will be in place that you can literally take your hands off the wheel and, and uh, the driving won't get in the way of communicating on your computer or, or other things. That's that's the future state. That's the future state. But it's going to take time to get there because you've got all the geometry that's out there now and all the vehicles that are out there now that you have to you have to deal with. But but those kinds of things to take to take structure and weight out of the vehicle are, are technically possible. But Oliver Cutner, part of it is an architectural you know revisit. I mean we, we are a bunch of engineers that don't know how to do cars because we're not car company. We build race cars to tremendous effect. Yeah. And you know racing cars survive tremendous high-energy crashes. And they do it in a different philosophy. Essentially, in a racing car, you glance off your offending project, ob, uh, object and you shed parts, thereby dissipating energy. This may sound strange to you, but we're going to crash test a 40% offset crash car and a side impact car before this year is over. And we're going to go through it with a car that weighs 1,200 pounds and gets hit by a 4,000-pound sled. Um, it's just physics. You can substitute mass for uh, absorption distance. Yeah. When you start to have cars that require less energy to move, your power plant, your battery, everything becomes smaller, which means you have more space for absorption distance, which means you can have structures that are really good. You know, an engine or a transmission is not a great impact-absorbing structure. It's essentially a big rock that just transfers the, the, the force. Um, you know... It, it, what, what I'm saying is a, is, a, is a very revolutionary thought. It costs billions of dollars, but the companies that embrace it are going to own the industry. Well, let me add even, make that even more revolutionary. Yes, what we really need to do is transform the whole transportation system and the road system and how we get about in a way that, you know, right now all vehicles serve all purposes. They're all basically, you know, four wheels, you know, full size, they have to perform safely on, on on freeways. What we need is a transportation system where we can provide have small vehicles that can operate safely in local areas. That's where the electric vehicle, by the way, will yeah. be especially attractive. You know, right now, and then right now, you know, because of regulatory reasons, we have a whole gap in vehicle types. We have a low-speed vehicle that's allowed that, you know, 25 miles per hour, up to 35 miles per hour, and nothing up to you know, a conventional. 
So our whole transportation system, you know, needs to be revolutionary. I think in the United States that'll be slow and not very complete, but the opportunity exists certainly in places like China and even Europe where they're starting to shut down the center cities to, you know, to regular vehicle, uh, combustion vehicles. So there's a lot of opportunity bringing more information technology to it, the automation to it. You know, our system is the most uh, resource-intensive, expensive system you can imagine. We're having Bill Reiner, Bill Reiner, and then I also want to let Forrest Beatum jump in. We're here. having these discussions internal to Toyota right now about rethinking the business proposition for urban mobility. And it might not be a, I'm going to sell you a car, I might sell you mobility services, because it does open up, and it's probably the only way you're going to see pervasive electric cars in San Francisco. There's just not the property to put charging for everybody. So you're going to do clustered charging. You might have San Francisco City Car Share still in business, I think, or sure. Zipcar or someplace yep. like that. And you might see, and in fact, you are seeing OEM start to partner up with the Hertz and the, and, and the, the car sharing folks. And then that opens the door to Google and some other applications and uh, Apple to, uh, to add uh, telematics to that. And so then you have a, a single portal from the airport to here. So transportation could change from a, for a product that's sold to, to a service yep. model. Uh, that's a big challenge to some of these auto, automakers here. Uh, oh, yeah. Forrest Beenham, you, you're a new car company. Could you see selling a service rather than selling metal and, uh, and rubber? Absolutely. I think uh, non-traditional partnerships are critical. And we're talking to the zip cars and the yeah. city rights. I mean, it's the wave of the future. It's an absolute must. Um, we've kind of moved past what I wanted to comment on, which was, Conversions versus new technology and where we focus on energy. For Coda, we're focused on the battery. Literally, it's the foundation of our car. Um, as we all know here as a panel, uh, there's a thing called range anxiety, and for consumers, they need to feel like they can get to where they're going and get home without breaking down, or I guess it wouldn't be breaking down, but without dying, uh, without their battery dying uh, on the side of the road. And so what we focused on is the battery. We're not using a computer battery, for example, to power our car or 7,000 of them strung together. We've focused on a prismatic, um, a prismatic purpose-built transportation-grade battery, which would get you that dependable range. Um, also, another kind of inside baseball thing we're talking about here on the stage, uh, we've made several references to one million vehicles on the road in the near future, and I think... Uh, many of us in the room and your, your listeners know this, but that is a quote that comes from the president uh, in his recent State of the Union. So the question becomes, um, what is the role of government uh, in helping us to, to accelerate the, the adoption of the electric vehicle? And I think something that would um, be beneficial to talk about is the role of fleets and um, the government purchasing electric vehicles because we're the largest uh, buyer and consumer of oil. And the government is doing that. There are different government agencies that are buying, but that's still tens of thousands. That's not that's not millions of, of units. Um, but Dan, Dan Sperling put out a point about transforming the U.S. transformation system. And Oliver Kuttner, uh, you think that the incumbent companies in Detroit and Tokyo are too conservative and risk averse. They have too much invested in the status quo to really upend it, right? So it's going to require startups and disruptors to really bring bold change. Well, I think part of it is that everybody thinks they know the solution. And with, with all due respect, we're proposing a large car that is light. It's the first light large car. We're also proposing a car that does not depend on exotic materials mm -hmm. because we're all about cost. 
So it's struct structural architecture that makes the car light. It's, it's a steel car. But do you think large companies that already have billions invested in certain uh, paradigms can really then change that paradigm or it has to come from the outside, startups in California? In the end, they do it. I mean, Toyota has been working on the Prius for a long time. And when the thing started to sell a million copies, they, they were surprised themselves. I mean, you look at Volkswagen. Volkswagen has a now nine-year-old program trying to break the mold on how to build an efficient car called the one-liter car. They have a wonderful car called the 1X, perhaps the nicest eco car, but it's still too small and it's still based on carbon fiber. You, you break those two things, you start to have the answer. When we have a car that's an EPA highway cycle, 129 miles per gallon, gasoline-burning car, that when you get to those numbers, you, you're, you're out of trouble. You know, when we can do with a 10 kilowatt hour battery pack what others can't do with a 18, 20 kilowatt hour battery pack, your cost problem goes away, your warranty problem shrinks, a lot of these other issues start to go away. If you have a good car battery that's hour. combined with that, yeah, but could you imagine having one of those batteries go into three cars? Suddenly your cost numbers become a lot more favorable. Suddenly your warranty liability becomes less. That's where we have to go. And in the end, the United States needs to do this with elegant engineering. We, we don't need to keep value engineering what we already know. We need to do, do better. So you we think can. this is just an engineering question? This is the beginning of it. Yes, it's an engineering question. Bill Reiner? I, I, I don't know that it's not an incremental game. I, I watch what happened with Ford once they've got Mihaly in place and, and the light waiting going on there, and, and I watch... Our competitors. I mean, we keenly watch the lightweighting, how we're doing structured uh, uh, hydroforming of steels and, and laser welding and all that stuff. And you start to get, you know, you start to really shave serious pounds out of the, just the frame for the door. You can save 50 pounds just out of doing hydroforming and laser welding. So it's not that we necessarily have to, to reinvent ourselves. I think over time we will do that, we just as a matter of being competitive. Well, in, in, in and with due respect to, to Oliver's Robinson, with, with due respect to Oliver's observations, I think what's technically true uh, in a lab test uh, or for one purpose um, uh, vehicle that, that's intending to achieve, a, a, let's say, a mile, a mile per gallon objective, we're, we're providing vehicles that customers do use for multiple purposes and expect to last over 100,000 miles. And so the duty cycles of the vehicles come into play. The specific applications that the vehicles are being used for come into play. Um, the expectations the customer has. Don't forget, the customer is going to decide what works here. The customer is going to ultimately decide, you know, who the winners are. And uh, that's why I worry sometimes when people look at a particular electric vehicle solution as the silver bullet. Um, I don't think we know that yet. And I think that's why the experimentation among the companies is a good thing. Customers will tell us who wins. And let's get a baseline here. How many electric cars are actually on the road today? Yeah. Well, GM is one of the ones, a uh, few yeah, that I mean, has... We've, we've, we've sold, uh, at this point, and we're going to sell about 10,000 this year. Volts. We, volts. Yeah, volts, yeah. volts. Uh, we've sold 2,000 plus at this point. And I understand most of those are Prius buyers coming over? 90%. Okay. Sorry, Bill. Yeah, so... Right. <laughs> no, no, when, when it breaks down, we'll get them. Oh, no. no, no, no don't, play, don't play like that. You can't play like that. Actually, it's interesting because they are they are uh, mostly Prius buys. Yeah. So is that going to road back to my earlier question? Is that going to kind of, uh, you know, is Toyota going to try to stay, keep all its chips on the hybrid or going to move more aggressively toward electric? 
Well, uh, we're doing a... You watch those, those vault sales closely. Mm-hmm. We're, we're doing a plug-in, Chris. We've taken a little different job. We're putting 150 of them out in the community. We want to understand how the charging behavior and the customer merge together and what this is like. So we've got them instrumented, and I think we collect 300 channels of data every second, and that's going to be available for all the national labs and their resources board. I think we're working with you to get that done. So we want to understand how this works. So we've got the plug-in Prius coming out in 2012. Uh, my project is the IQEV, which is the non-owned ownership model that we're going to bring here to California, working with some uh, other people. And, and under- You're going to lease the car to lease? I, I can't get in. We haven't re- there will not be a financial transaction that's like a lease or a sell. It won't be that way. They're going to be free. They're going. That's great. You're going to pay. We all. I'll take one. You're going to to pay a provider for service, all in service, everything. Okay. Again, so moving toward a service model. Yeah. So, so you might selling miles rather than you might drive my IQ one day, and you might say, I need an SUV to go up to Sacramento, and you can go to the dealer and do something like. So we're looking at that. Uh, This is important. Merling. This is important. What Bill's saying, and it's kind of what I was referring to earlier about the market evolving. You know, at UC Davis, we've done a lot of this market research, including with the plug-in Priuses. And, you know, it's clear that the market's going to be evolving. But we don't really, we think, you know, actually some of our research suggests that, you know, the strategy that Toyota is using is probably a very promising one where you have a plug-in Prius with a relatively small battery because you get a lot of the benefit with a small battery and less cost. But there's questions, you know, they're probably a big market for those that want the 40-mile range also. But we don't really know, and so we're doing lots of market research. There's the model that Bill's also talking about, you know, the shared use of vehicles. Um, it's going to, the world is going to change. The world is going to change because, you know, uh, both from the market and the policy perspective, we're going to be tightening up very aggressively the greenhouse gas standards and the energy use in the vehicles. And that's going to cause, a, that by itself will cause a major, you know, that might be Oliver, you know, the yeah. solution to, in for Oliver. In an entirely rational universe. Mike Robinson. In an entirely rational universe, um, what Bill and Dan are talking about makes perfect sense because when you think about how little time you spend in a vehicle and how much of an investment yeah. it represents, there's, there's probably a more efficient way to get around. There's actually a very interesting startup uh, based here in San Francisco. It's called Sprite or something like that. Sunil Paul actually is trying to, it's developing a way to take the city car share model so that those of us who own cars and it sits in the garage 80 or 90 percent of the time, we can then lease that out to our neighbors if we if we dare and think they're not going to spill the, coffee the, on our the chairs but, and, the but uh, and make money off of that, right? The, the, the but in, in what I just said is the people, the, not everybody, but um, a lot of uh, what we know is that people have, it's not necessarily rational, but they have an emotional connection to wanting to own their vehicle and take personal responsibility and pride in that vehicle. One of the things we're learning from the Volt, by the way, in the, in, and we get the constant feedback, we've got the OnStar system connected, we know where the vehicles are, we know how long they've been they've driven per day, how many miles have been put on them. We also know from the verbatims we get from the customers that the fun-to-drive aspects of this thing and the personal Pride of ownership is a big deal, and so don't lose sight of that. Well, and, and I'm sure that the marketing from Toyota and and uh, from uh, Detroit and, and uh, Tokyo won't lose sight of, of, of that. Uh, we're talking about electric cars at the Commonwealth Club. We have Bill Reinert, national manager from Toyota, Mike Robinson, just speaking, vice president at General Motors, Dan Sperling from UC Davis, 
Oliver Kuttner, CEO of Edison 2, a startup car company, technology company, and Forrest Beenham from Coda Automotive. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Mike Robinson, GM's gone through a transition recently and uh, bankruptcy, et cetera, and uh, talks about the, the new GM. Uh, the, the old GM uh, was a leader in, in the auto alliance that spent a lot of time challenging and litigating against California's clean air standards and efficiency standards. Is that still going to be the case, or do you think there's more collaborative approach with regulators such as uh, at the Air Resources Board and other places now? Yeah, the, the et cetera was a big thing. I mean, the, the bankruptcy and et cetera, that was yeah. a big thing. Um, <laughs> um, we don't want to get that down into I, that. I, I, didn't, I didn't sleep much that year. Um, but I, 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 guess, I guess I'd like to hear from Dan on, on how he feels about it. But I... I don't think you're going to. I think the last several years, in particular, have been invested in in collaborative relationships with uh, with regulatory agencies across the board. I, I personally uh, have, have directed the team at GM that's responsible for that. CARB um, is is among our highest priorities in terms of the relationship and the and the reviews that we have with technical staff. Uh, I think uh, it's a very constructive relationship. Um, we have the same kind of dialogue on an ongoing basis with EPA and NHTSA. So. My view of the world is um, we haven't got we haven't got the luxury of resources to swing and miss or fight with one another. We've got to find common ground and, and solve these problems together. So does GM support? There's a quantitative uh, minimum uh, called the zero emissions vehicle mandate, which yeah. uh, stipulates a minimum production. Does yeah. GM support that for in California? Whatever is twenty five thousand zero emissions. Did Dan put you up to this? <laughs> I'm glad you know. asked him. I'm just I mean, I'm curious. <laughs> oh, Toyota's next. Don't worry. I guess what I was, I'll tell you what I told Tom Paquette uh, last week from from CARP. Tom is a senior uh, person at the CARP staff, and and we have a direct dialogue with with him on a regular basis. I told Tom from my perspective. Uh, a lot has changed since the days that you described where there was a lot of fighting between the industry and CARB. And, and one of the things I think has changed is that we've got a single national program for the first time. Uh, I say program, not standard, because EPA's got its own standard, CARB's got its own standard, NHTSA's got its own standard, and we're working like dogs to try to, you know, reconcile these three different legislative approaches into one understandable, achievable uh, standard or, or program. The next generation of 2017 to 25 fuel economy and CO2 reduction rules is going to be very important for all of us to try to keep on that path to have a single national program. I think ZEV um, needs to be reconciled with that program. I didn't say eliminated. I said reconciled, yeah, because... If we have a separate standalone ZEV standard that hasn't been somehow ZEV reconciled, being the zero emission, zero emission vehicle, vehicle standard, right. um, it, it creates... Uh, Difficulties for all of us as OEMs, as, as original equipment manufacturers. Um, we want to work with the CARB staff to figure out how to do that. I don't have an answer for you that I can provide today, but uh, uh, we have challenges under ZEV. And I'll, I'll be, you know, Bill and I were talking earlier about, about fuel cells. Um, we're both uh, invested heavily in fuel cells and, and, and really want to see that technology come to fruition. I'd like to be able to announce a production-ready vehicle uh, soon, but we can't do that because we don't have infrastructure that we can believe in yet to provide uh, uh, refueling opportunities for right. our customers. We need to solve those kinds of problems, and it's going to take a team effort to do it. That's a big chicken and egg question, but Dan Sperling, let's let you jump in here on whether the car companies have changed their stripes. It's a different day than the litigate, uh, litigation and antagonism that happened uh 
years ago? Yeah, I'd say there has been a, a, a great change, a, a transformation even in terms of the relationship. If you go back to the 90s and even in the early years of, of the past decade, there was a lot of conflict. It was very, it was adversarial. In fact, you know, when I, I did this book, Two Billion Cars, and really the motivation for it, for me, was the, the frustration over the, the lack of a relationship, a lack of progress in moving ahead with fuel economy standards and greenhouse gas standards. And there has been a lot of progress for a variety of reasons. But I do, but, you know, there's an inherent conflict here, you know, between the regulators and the auto industry. And, and there is, you know, as Mike says, there is a much better working relationship. Everyone is talking to each other, exchanging information much better. But it still comes down to, you know, the question that, any company, I don't even say a car company, any company inherently doesn't want to be told what to do and is protecting its business. And so, you know, and then you have the regulators operating with incomplete information because, you know, they don't tell us everything. They don't tell us what they really think and everything. Uh, it's much better than it was before. And so there is this tension about how to move forward and how aggressive to be, and that's going to, you know, that's inherent to it. And the zero emission vehicle, so the, the last point I would make, the zero emission vehicle program, I think, to defend that, I think that's a critical part of all of this. Now, we can put in place these aggressive cafe and greenhouse gas standards, and we are, and we will be. But there's still a problem in getting the advanced technology into the marketplace. It's partly, you know, getting the fuel stations for the hydrogen out there. It's partly the charging station. But it's more that there's a, res- a resistance to new change. You know, consumers aren't quite ready. The car companies are looking at the risk. And so what a zero-emission vehicle program does is it, in a sense, jumpstarts, kickstarts the technology and gets it into the market. It's, it shouldn't be a permanent program. It should be a temporary program just to get things started because, as we've said, you know, we can talk a million cars, but the reality is we're talking really tens of thousands of cars. That Bill Reiner from Toyota. Yeah, let, let, let me pick at the ARB just a little bit. And I, and I don't disagree that there's some floor, Zev floor, to, to keep us all interested. Okay. But, but it's my experience that over the years, and we've been, I don't know, 15 years, a long time, back when we both had hair. Um, <laughs> the, the, the failure I see at the Air Resources Board is a regulatory inability to, to look at vehicles as systems. The, the fuel and, and the infrastructure and the car and take a systems approach. For instance, we'd like to, you, you have a, you have a low carbon city standard that we're, we're going to address now and we're, that shapes how communities work and then how you move about in communities. We're very interested in serving that with fuel cell buses. There's a big, and, and that could actually jumpstart the hydrogen infrastructure and cause a lot of good things to happen. But that doesn't, satisfy any ZEV regulations, and we, we'd like to have this dialogue, actually probably going to try to have this dialogue, and about mobility systems to say, hey, why don't we pull back a little bit, and if we're really quit taking a look at an electric car replacing a gasoline car and look at how we transform, as you said earlier, transportation systems and take a, and take a real transformative effect. We don't. Just want, let me just defend okay. ARB for a moment here, because I think that California has done by far the best job of coming up with a coherent approach to dealing with vehicles and fuels, you know, far more than any other entity in the world. And we do have, you know, I mean, ideally it it, it would be completely integrated, but there's a lot of really good people 
at ARB that are really engaging, right. not just with right. the auto companies but others. And there is a program that deals with the fuels, low-carbon fuel standards, with the vehicles. We're looking at a clean fuels outlet program that will somehow figure out how to get the right. hydrogen out there. Yeah. We're looking on the, on the vehicle use side. We have rules and, you know, incentives for reducing vehicle use. And we're doing it in a way, you know, we with my regulator hat okay. on, not my academic hat on. We are working at figuring out how to do that, and it's a much more coherent approach than anywhere else. Can it be done better? Absolutely. Can we, you know, refine parts of it? Absolutely, we should. And that's part of this discussion here, you know, and that, you know, Bill and I and Michael continue this. Yeah, We're good timing at- is critical to us because Dan knows this more than the average person, but... You know, we're having this discussion about what do we do in 2015. Bill and I uh, uh, are working with the engineering folks. They have to make decisions today yeah. about what's going to happen in 2015. So if we were to announce, for instance, a fuel cell product uh, for 2015 or 16, um, we'd have to have in place today yeah. uh, the pieces to make that happen. We'd be picking out the wood grain. Which is one reason why some people are quite skeptical about hydrogen because of that that infrastructure need to, to be in place first. Oliver Kuttner from Edison, you want to jump in yeah. here? Then we're going to go to audience questions. We'll get the mic out here, and uh, we can start to form a line. But uh, Oliver Kuttner? As a non-OEM and somebody who's going to spend the rest of his life working on this, I, I want to make meaning with it. And I'm very glad that things like zero emissions standards exist because they become the niche opportunity for the small car company. And it's really ironic that the gentleman from Toyota was actually complaining that the zero emissions guys will not allow their buses to be counted in there. I'm very glad that these laws exist. They push, and they create the opportunity for little companies like us. The the real reason we exist is because we believe that the new CAFE standard is going to get the big guys to start to scramble in about two or three years. And we actually think that there's a business model whereby if we can get our act together and be able to produce 20, 30, 40,000 units that meet these laws, and I believe we can actually meet them with an ICE and an electric car, that some of the large companies may just come along and say, you know what, we're going to buy 10,000 units from these guys. Because engineering a car that is different from anything else is a huge task. Producing it is another task. Distributing it is another task. Legislation is another task. As an upstart company, I don't want to take on all these tasks. History is littered with new upstart car companies that fail. I don't want to become a car company. But thanks to these niche rules you have, I can see myself selling my services to these two gentlemen one of these days. So I'm glad you exist. You're welcome. So uh, <laughs> we're discussing electric cars at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. We just heard from Oliver Kuttner, CEO of Edison 2. We also have Bill Reinert, National Manager at Toyota. Mike Robinson, VP for Energy, Environment, and Safety Policy at General Motors. Dan Sperling with the California Air Resources Board and UC Davis. And Forrest Beenham, VP of Government Relations at Coda Automotive. Let's go to our first audience question, please. Hi, my name is Pat Riley. And I'm with uh, Perrin Company, and we are working on a public-private partnership to speed EV preparation and adoption with commercial and residential uh, real estate holders here in the Bay Area. And I guess I have some questions related to consumer adoption. Um, we've been talking to a lot of stakeholders, and one of which was the uh, largest Nissan, Nissan dealership here. 
And they said that they've got such a backlog of orders for Leafs right now as a result of the issues in Japan. And when consumers are coming into their lot, they're not, they, they're not interested in any kind of hybrid. They strictly want a full EV vehicle. And he's expecting that his sales, all electric vehicle sales, will represent at least maybe 50, even 60 percent within the next two years for him in the Bay Area. And I'm wondering um, if people aren't underestimating consumer demand as a result of the high price of gas and inflation and other pressures on consumers about the desire to switch to EV vehicles. Thank you. Wait. Let's go with that. You know, are these things, could, could you be surprised on the upside? I, well, I'm just to jump in. Yes, I, absolutely. Um, Thank you. Coda differs from several of the folks on this panel because we only produce an electric car company. Uh, we're, we only produce an electric car. We're the only electric car from an electric car company. Um, so we absolutely think that demand is a little bit larger than uh, than what most people think. We've read even GM studies that say 40% of adult drivers want to drive or own an electric vehicle. So we're in business uh, selling an electric car only because we believe that this demand is is out there, Ms. Riley. So um, uh, we think that there's great demand there. And, and, and I should also mention briefly that we invited someone from Nissan to be part of this. It didn't work out uh, scheduling-wise, but we'll definitely have Nissan and other companies uh, here as we continue this dialogue here at Climate One. Uh, Mike Robinson? Could you be surprised on the upside? Well, sure. I, I think uh, um, we want to be prepared for that, and, and we are making investments to be prepared for that in terms of uh, having our manufacturing capacity able to, to make adjustments to the volumes that I talked about earlier. We've got a uh, CEO that is driven to, uh, to be able to do that. Uh, you know, quite frankly, we're all fierce competitors. Um, um, we have a lot of common ground from a policy standpoint. We're all trying to beat each other's brains in from a marketing standpoint and from a customer satisfaction standpoint. So we want to be able to take advantage of those opportunities and, and increase our volume. Uh, and, and I do think there will be pockets, particularly in California, where the demand far exceeds um, the demand in other parts of the country just because of the California consumer being uh, different and, and for, you know, for all kinds of reasons. So I think it's possible. Uh, I hope Would that it be is. good for General Motors, given that I think you're selling uh, because of the huge cost of developing the Volt. You're not making money yet on the Volt, yeah. so you're going to be selling more of something that you're losing yeah, I mean, money on. It sounds like a it sounds like a cocktail party joke. To you know, we're losing money on every one, but we'll make it up in volume. Um, that's uh, it depends on how you look at the investment. This is a long-term investment for us. I give Toyota credit for the Prius. I mean. I talked to economists 10 years ago that would look at the cost of the, of the technology and would look at the price of gasoline and say, this doesn't pencil. Why would anybody buy one? Well, it didn't make but, sense when dollar, gas was a dollar. Well, no. Uh, yeah. But, but uh, I, give, I give Toyota credit for, for seeing the long term and seeing the opportunity and creating um, enough buzz with consumers to, to develop an interest in, in, uh, in a market for that vehicle, even at a time when you you look at it and, and say, well, it doesn't pencil from a, from a pure economic standpoint. I think this is um, maybe not the same, but in a comparable kind of way, a, a long-term vision we have about the technology. And, and um, you know, I, I, think, I think we want to be perceived as leaders, and I think we've got a good, a good approach to the problem, solving the problem. Just, but, let's get to our next one thought to that. Dan Sperling, quickly. Just, just to summarize, you know, I think 
there is a strong commitment on both the vehicle side and the consumer side to electrification, vehicle electrification. Consumers really, we've seen this in market research at UC Davis that we've done since 1990. People really like the concept of an electric vehicle and electric motors. You know, it gets away from combustion, gets away from fossil fuels. The challenge is to figure out how to provide a product that they really will buy. And that's a big question. You know, is it a pure EV? Is it a, a, a hybrid, plug-in hybrid with a small battery, with a big battery? And that's wide open. That's where we really don't know. And, and how much volume we get in each of those categories is, is something that we're all going to be learning in the coming and, years. And they're fun to drive and they're fast. Let's get to the next uh, question quickly. My question, <clears throat> my name is Carter McCree from Presidio Graduate School. And my question had to do with the service model. And how are you going to assure that emotional connection you were talking about earlier that comes with buying a vehicle if you're just providing a service? I mean, who, why do I care which bus I get on or, or that sort of thing? Well, that, that's Bill Reiner. That, that's, that's interesting because it gets back to, and we were talking about this earlier. You guys missed a great conversation back in the back in their green, green room. room. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, it's who owns the customer, okay? Uh, if I'm going to build a car, and today's model is you come and buy a Toyota from me. I own the customer. You're going to come back to me for service and other things. But now I'm providing a service, and that service is just as easily owned by the electric utility that plugs in and communicates with you or by the service provider of Zipcar or City Car Share or by maybe somebody that has Internet capabilities, Wi-Fi capabilities. It could be a Google or a Qualcomm or somebody like that who's communicating to the cars because we're going to provide a lot of telematics in this. So it, it's, we don't know that answer yet. And if you know, I'll buy the answer from you. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're making a lot of this up we, as we, we go along. Have, we, we might have to learn a lot from folks that have been in that business longer than we have. We haven't been doing that. No. Uh, um, and and uh, there's probably other industries that we could, we could learn from. But if you look at Zipcar, and I'll bring them out, if you look at the loyalty to, Zip, to the Zippies, I think it's like 85 or 90 percent loyal back to the program and hugely loyal to the car they're driving. So you can't ignore the demographics. Even though they're not making money yet, you can't ignore the, the demographics of that. Next question, please. Hi. Yes, I'm Jay Friedland from Plug in America. We're a consumer advocacy group for electric vehicles, and I personally have an electric vehicle and driven it over 80,000 miles in the last 10 years. And uh, I guess my question is, is twofold. One, um, if you look at the Prius phenomena, which I think was was really sort of borne out, where one person in a neighborhood bought a Prius, and then what you saw was the neighbors going, wow, well, that car could work for me, and wait, gas prices are, are now getting higher and higher. What? How could that affect consumer demand in terms of people actually seeing these vehicles on the road? Because every time I talk to someone and they they ride my car, or they drive my car, they're like, I want one of these cars. There's there's no question, but but I'm one person. Yeah. And so the so, other the other question I guess I would okay, add. Let's hold it to one. Oh, sure, sure. We got a line there. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so the neighborhood effect. Yeah, I, I, there'll be a coolness effect and a neighborhood effect with with some of these vehicles for sure. I think we've seen some of that already. Um, I, I think the bigger piece of it, um, from my perspective, is the comfort level. We, I, I said earlier that in our small group, I think a lot of people are agnostic right now. And, and I know you've done studies, um, Dan, uh, that talk about the, the desire of people to own electric. I think there's still among a lot of folks a wait-and-see attitude about yeah. it. They want to test. They want to see how the technology actually yeah. performs, let other people be the, the early adopters. But I do think... Um, there's that opportunity as as people get more comfortable with the experience by seeing others do it. Um, 
that could have a big influence on, on how, how big the market gets. That's why I said earlier, I want the technology to work. I don't want fits and starts with, with our competitors having problems or us having problems with, with the technology. Jay, I, I helped launch the Prius and the, and the Rev4, the one you're driving, actually. And, and we did exactly the same viral marketing internet-based marketing, and that really what it was. It wasn't so much the neighborhood stuff, but that's a double-edged sword because now we've moved to, to Facebook and Twitter. And, and let me say, a success, there's a million successes, and, and, and you get all these tweets, but a failure, everybody knows about it instantly. So we have to be incredibly careful about this viral marketing. It can really come back and bite you. So that, that's what we're really looking at now. Bill Reinert is National Manager at Toyota. We also heard from Mike Robinson, VP at General Motors. Our other guests here at Climate One today are Forrest Beenham from Coda Automotive, Oliver Kuttner from Edison Two, and Dan Sperling from UC Davis and the California Air Resources Board. Let's have our next audience question, please. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. My name is Roger Avery. I'm a independent consultant. I'm retired from BART. That's the subway system here from their engine. I was a manager in engineering. The issue of people uh, reducing gas emissions and all of that comes down to making more people use the electric vehicles. And one way to do that is to work that in with public transit. That means putting in charging stations, Uh in Uh park and rides, Uh bus stations. Uh There are transit stations in the city where I live. We have to do that. To do that, we have to have standards of how much power you're going to draw, how, what the safety is going to be, which requires changes to the National Electric Code, which is at least a three-year cycle. The 2011 has just come out. So how 2015 is going to work with public charging stations is a real problem, and it's going to take more than that. I've worked on PV, and the standard in the National Electric Code has taken at least nine years to get there. So where do, how do we make these charging stations get put in in a safe way and get the metering done and because it's illegal to sub-meter in the state of California so you can't have one person selling it. Big problem. Uh, Thank you. So let's, how are we going to get this move quickly? The infrastructure, some people think the public charging part actually moves very slowly. Let me, let me say something yeah. controversial and, and there is some question of how much public charging you even need. I mean, people are going to, the evidence seems to be that people say they want these public charging stations out there, but, you know, maybe if you put a little Potemkin village kind of things out there, and they think they're out, I'm only joking, but it's that people think they want it, but then actually after they buy the vehicle, and this is early evidence, they don't hardly ever use it. And so... Uh, and as a society, we want them to charge at home at night exactly. when there's a excess electricity sure. in the system, right? So, so it's better and... Bill Reiner? We said range anxiety, and I, and I don't really buy range anxiety because I've driven electric cars long enough, and I took my wife out of a Lexus and put her into a little e-com, little 50-mile uh, electric car. And we learned how to deal with it. What we don't learn about and what we can't deal with and why we, why I kind of disagree with you a little bit on public charging is we can't deal with range non-repeatability. And the problem is, is all the hotel loads, it's your heating and your cooling and your demisting and your lights and your wipers, that all comes off your traction battery. So you can easily take your leaf and drive it into, into San Francisco in, 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 in the day and have plenty of charge to get back home. But then you get the monsoonal rains coming in and you're running your defroster and your wipers and your lights and you're caught up on I-280 traffic and you're, and you're going five miles an hour. Well, that's a diurnal load. That load continues regardless of how far you've got to go. And so I think that we do need 
public charging in areas to solve not range anxiety but range repeatability when you get southern sudden shifts in weather. That that's where I'm coming. Phil Reiner is a national manager at Toyota. Let's have our next audience question, please. Yeah, another question relating to the uh, the charging stations. Wilfred Welch of EQ Wind. We're down in Santa Clara, uh, and it's wind turbine and solar driven power stations that'll go in big box stores and also support for truck fleets that are in urban areas. Okay, and I really just want to know your sense from these six different companies, five different companies, as to the kind of rollout options that you see for charging stations, public and privately owned. Any comments on that? I would welcome. Thank you. Well, I'll give the quick response that I think that we're going to definitely see uh, companies will put in uh, stations for their employees, Mm -hmm. and they'll pay for it. And that's good, you know, because part of the theme here is government, in case we haven't noticed, doesn't have a whole lot of cash around to be spending on these things. So I think we will see employers putting it in. We'll see big box stores like Costco and Target putting in uh, as a convenience and attraction for their customers. And then the question is beyond that, you know, how much is needed and how much we need to invest and strategically where do we put it. But I'm not... We don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I would say Robinson. We, we certainly are, are in support of public infrastructure, but we're not counting on it, and we don't depend on it. And our, our model is basically home charging is sufficient for most folks. Uh, workplace charging is a, is a good idea. We're encouraging employers uh, where we can. Um, but we're not, to, to Dan's point about budgets and, and the mundane issues associated with finance, I've seen the books in California, Dan. I, um, I'm not counting it's on not a lot pretty. of public. It's not pretty. Um, so we're not counting on that. And I, I think the model for most of us works with 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 the home charging. And, and uh, the cost, of course, is, is negligible unless you want to put in your own charging station at your house. You can charge in your garage with, with 120 or 240. Right. So it works um, on that model. The the, uh, the public stations would be great, but I'm not counting on them. Let's go to the next audience question, please. Hi. My name is Jan Alfwiegel. <clears throat> I'm from Marin County. And I have a question for Dan. <clears throat> Excuse my voice. Um, ABEG and the MTC right now, as I'm sure you're aware, are going through a review process of um, – uh, transportation projects that um, will are identified to uh, meet the goals of Senate Bill 375, the uh, Sustainable Communities uh, litigation, uh, Legislation. Um, in Marin, we, um, I was one of the authors of a uh, proposal submitted to MTC for funding of um, EV charging infrastructure. And my question is, <clears throat> excuse me, um, MTC is looking at a wide array, a broad array of projects submitted by the nine-county Bay Area region um, for road maintenance, for public transit, for infill development, for EV infrastructure, for unfunded existing projects that, that still need to go ahead. Where do you see electric vehicle infrastructure ranking among those priorities as MTC looks at its, um, you know, limited funding sources and, you know, looking at these different choices that they have to make? Where Thank do EVs rate? Thank you. Okay, Dan. And I, I guess I repeat what I said before, and that is that um, this is a struggle is figuring out how many and where to put them. And, you know, looking at it from a government perspective, as I said, you know, there's a lot of, not a lot of cash around. So I would think that creating the incentives for companies or, or local governments to do it, you know, working in partnership is really the key on this. And 
I just don't see a lot of money being devoted because, you know, partly what Mike said is for the plug-in hybrids, they don't really need much much uh, public infrastructure. So it's just the pure battery EVs. And it's going to be slow how they evolve out there and what the market is. So I'm, you know, I'm very bullish on plug-in electric vehicles, um, which means including the, pl- the hybrids and the pure battery EVs. And so I, but I'm, you know, I, I, I get nervous about government spending a lot of money on this. I think there's a better way. We can create the incentives for the partnerships and industry and employers to do it, but I, I, you know, I worry about local government spending their money on something like this. We got about four minutes left. Let's try to get one or two more questions in. So quick questions, quick answers, and we'll wrap this up. Yes, sir. Yes, my name is Bill Zeller. I'm with the City of San Francisco Department of the Environment, and we're actually working now actively planning infrastructure projects for EVs. And I have a question for the auto manufacturers. One of the big issues is the battery electrics versus the plug-in hybrids. They obviously have significantly different requirements. Um, anybody care to take a stab at how those will um, bisect the, the uh, plug-in market, those two types of vehicles? would really help us. Or you mean level two versus level one? No, I'm thinking more in terms of battery electrics versus plug-in hybrids right. and how they'll, how they'll, the market will buy. I, I think that, that our General Motors range extended electric vehicle and the Toyota plug-in hybrids are very, are, are they're compatible. They're compatible. Yeah. Uh, they can use the same infrastructure. They're very, uh, they're very much less expensive overall for society to adopt. And I think you'll see the plug-ins, the plug-in Hybrids or the range-extended electric cars have a, a, a very robust market initially. EVs may come, but they're going to come later and slower. Next question, please. Hi, uh, my name is Heather Barton, and I'm also with Pat Riley at PR and Company, working on the public-private partnership um, for EV readiness. And my question is, um, where do you see the gaps in education um, for the public for the EV infrastructure and campaign, as well as um, where do you see the Bay Area in terms of global marketing for uh, EV readiness? Well, Mike Robinson? Bay, Bay, Bay Area is a, a huge target for us, and I think every automatic, <laughs> automotive manufacturer. Um, we've, we've sold 2,000 volts so far, and uh, half of them are California. We've got seven markets that we've targeted initially. Half of them have gone to California, so you can tell how many of the rest of the six target markets have received. It's going to continue to be an area of emphasis uh, for us. I think San Francisco is probably more ready for EVs than the average uh, car market by far. Um, so it's going to continue to get a lot of attention from us. I would guess my competitors are going to say the same thing. Partners and, and colleagues Absolutely. as well, yes. Yeah. Um, Beenham. We also, you asked about gaps in education. I think I would categorize that as there's some misperceptions out there. You know, we talked briefly about range anxiety, and you mentioned putting your wife uh, into a 50-mile yeah. vehicle. Um, the, the national average uh, is 34 miles that someone drives per day. So when you have cars that guarantee 100 miles plus, it really is adequate. So I think in terms of education, we need to educate people about that. In addition to educate them when they're making a, a, a choice about which car, um, what the range means. In other words, there are different standards. There's US 06, LA 04. There are different standards which mean different ranges. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as an industry to, exactly to drill right. down That's on exactly that right. and to, to educate consumers. What are you really going to get out of, out of our cars? Right. Not, not what you're going to get in some test cycle, but what are you really going to get? With the windshield wipers on. But, exactly. but here's what I think society has to change. 
there's almost no customer that buys the car for their average use. They buy it for their one-time use, and that's why you see big SUVs that are raised up with trailer hitches on them with single-occupant cars. Until we can get society to understand that there's a multiple-use, average-use model that's actually the best way to go, and we can provide other mechanisms for them uh, at the dealership or at Hertz when they need different modes of transportation, that's what has to happen. That has to happen. Last question. Yes, sir. My name is... Excuse me. My name is Brian Bousset. I have a vocational school in West Oakland called the Oakland Institute of Automotive Technology. I'm right in the process now of converting a three-axle diesel truck to electric by way of a a grant through air quality management. And one of the things I'm running into is coming up with a decent battery. My concept is to go after a lithium (laughs) polymer. What's your opinion about these lithium polymer batteries? Uh, let me ask, also preface this by saying we heard, uh, some of us heard uh, former CIA director Jim Woolsey yesterday say that there's going to be some breakthroughs in technology, battery technology, whether it's nano, ceramic, et cetera. Uh, so let's ask, answer his question as well as the battery breakthrough. Yeah. We, no? we, yeah, there's a lot of theories about that, but we, um, that's not what I'm hearing from our R&D guys. No, okay. our, our guys don't believe that either. Okay, and how about the gentleman's question about lithium? Polymer. Polymer. Very expensive. Yeah. And so you, you also have to consider what what can be you know mass produced. And so when you're talking about total cost of ownership and the cost of the car, you need to keep in mind uh, that these types of new technologies are extremely expensive right. and therefore not right. uh, easily adopted. And, and if you're looking at at a one one off conversion, which I think is what the thing was, I'd, I'd probably look at and maybe not the most advanced battery out there, but maybe one of the most rugged. Nickel hydride. Yeah, nickel metal hydride. I mean, you can pull them out of out of I think you can get them from Rev 4 EVs, not that any are broken. But, but I think you can get that. And, and I'd look at that. To, to, to get the idea of electrification is far more than the battery. It's the power electronics and the cooling of the power electronics and all the inverters and all that stuff that's key. And, you know, just a closing thought on all this. You know, we have talked here about all of these questions and uncertainties. It's, it's the technology market. In the end, it's the, the theme that we were talking about before. We have to work together, you know, the industry and the yeah. government. And I did just want to mention, you know, something in California. There's a, the electric uh, plug-in electric vehicle collaborative mm-hmm. where it is all of these companies, the utilities, the car companies, the government agencies, the academics. And, you know, at UC Davis, we played a role in helping this put this report together. It's an ongoing effort. And I would just remind everyone of it that this is what's needed, and this is how we're really going to move forward because we don't know the answers, you know, to most of these questions, exactly how it's going to play out. But you keep coming to Climate One, you'll figure out what the smartest people can figure out. Two quick ones to, to follow up on. Uh, uh, Bill Reiner, I want to get your thought on fee baits, which is something that some people are looking at as, as a way to sort of another incentive to get people into more efficient cars. Where's Toyota on fee baits? I, I can't answer for Toyota. I can answer personally that it worry, I worry about uh, populations that have limited, limited means to move up into this stuff, and I worry about I worry about environmental justice. Uh, and so I, I understand that how the fee baits work, but some people that that don't make as much money as I have to have a bigger, larger car, and they shouldn't be 
I'm surprised by what you say because people that tend to have less income are going, first of all, they don't tend to buy new cars. Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. But even if they did, they tend to buy the more smaller, yeah, more efficient no, no, vehicles. And they would get so, rewarded in fee bait system. Right? They get cash on the hood. Right. So can we sign you up for fee baits, no, uh, not Bill? Not <laughs> Too much of a libertarian uh, for that. <laughs> last question is, uh, I wanted to uh, mention a quote from the American CEO of Hyundai, who they put out 50 mile per gallon average uh, in 2025, and and the CEO John Krafchick said, "We don't know how we're going to get there right now, but we do have a roadmap." And that's very different than some companies saying, "We're not going to commit to any more than what we already know how to do." He's saying, "We're putting a goal out there, and we're going to figure out how to get there." That's more risky. Is that the kind of leadership we should see, Dan Sperling? We certainly need leadership in all levels here. It's kind of you know, it's the same theme. You know, we don't know how this play out. And, and it, it is leadership. It's leadership in the car, from the big car companies, from you know innovation, entrepreneurship, from the little ones, showing leadership there, leadership in the policy world. You know, we need. You know, we can kind of you know make a little fun of President Obama's one million car goal, but we need those aspirations. We need that leadership, and we might not achieve it, and it might be some hype to it. But without some hype, you know, we don't want too much hype. <laughs> there's, there's some fine, <laughs> you know, env- you know, uh, range in there of how much hype we want. But we need that. And, and that's how this is going to happen. If we don't have the leadership, if we don't have a little hype, it's not going to happen. And we have to end it there. Our thanks to Dan Sperling from UC Davis and the California Air Resources Board, Mike Robinson, VP at General Motors, Bill Reinert, National Manager at Toyota, Forrest Beenham, VP of Government Relations at Coda Automotive, and Oliver Kuttner, CEO at Edison 2. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today and listening on the radio. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man.